restaurants before they're open and after they're closed are important to be considered critically. And the review is not simply about going there, eating, and saying what to get, what not to. It's about larger issues concerning urban development and who gets to open where and what type of chefs and, and what type of cuisines. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Ryan Sutton was the chief restaurant critic at Eater New York and is one of the most respected critics in the game. I wanted to invite him into the studio to talk about his career and some of the memorable stories he's worked on over the years. Does Ryan have any reviews that he regrets? How does he stay excited about dining out each and every night? And what is next for Ryan Sutton? He answers most of my questions in this amazing episode. I hope you enjoy it. Ryan Sutton, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thanks for having me, Matt. Excited to be here. It's exciting to have you. I've, I've never met you. I've never seen your face. Uh, I try to lay low. It's part <laughs> of my, y- you could say it's part of my brand, but I think it's part about keeping a roof over my head. And one of the things <laughs> I've always tried to do uh, is to, in as much as I'm a, a food critic uh, and have been a, a full-time employed food critic for you know the better part of nearly 20 years, yeah. uh, I try to remain as anonymous as possible. So it's it's pretty difficult to find my photo on the internet. Yeah, I've tried. I've, I've definitely tried. Um, so I wanted to have you in. Um, I was really sad to see the news at Eater. There was a round of layoffs. I think Vox laid off 7%. Don't quote me. You were unfortunately one of the laid off. So your tenure at Eater is ending. Just take me through the day that news broke. Yeah, it was a it was a pretty big surprise. In fact, that's an understatement. I would call it the uh, you know the shock of a lifetime. You know, I had been working on just more broadly speaking. Uh, the reason it was especially a shock is that I, for the better part of the past year, and I had been working on what I thought were some you know some pretty cool stories, specifically regarding uh, inflation, uh, which is probably. This one of the single most, if not the single most in, important stories uh, in, in not just in food writing or in food criticism, but throughout our larger economy, because it's things that, you know, folks are struggling with. And I would I had just kind of been wrapping up, um, you know, a larger project on that issue. So I was, you know, excited to, to, to get that going and hopefully get it out into the world. Uh, and, you know, you're working on this important stuff. And then you wake up one morning and you get an email uh, and you all of a sudden your brain switches from trying to solve for what you think are important problems, what you know are important problems, plaguing, again, the restaurant industry and the entire country. And you go from that and you pivot to how am I going to pay for my rent in, you know, later this year? How are my fellow colleagues who got laid off? How are they going to pay for their rent? You know, folks who are working on, you know, some of the, the pressing issues uh, throughout our larger world. How are we going to pay for our health care? Uh, later this year. Um, but, you know, of course, you know, we're incredibly grateful that we have a, a union uh, that, you know, that fought, you know, for good severance, for industry-leading severance, and for, uh, for health care as well. Um, but still, you know, what's going to happen, you know, when that, when that runs out? You know, throughout that day and, you know, throughout that week, you have a few uh, oh darn moments. Mm-hmm. You know, what's going to how are we going to solve for this? You know, we again we're trying to solve for the problems of the restaurant industry. Now we're trying to you know keep a roof over our heads. How is that? How for all of us? How is that going to happen? And uh, I don't think we have all figured that question out yet. Um, but what I do know, and 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 I and I feel this deep in my heart, 
And what I'm excited about is that even though we may not have figured out the economics of our lives at this point, which is pretty scary, uh, how are we going to stay in our apartments? How are we going to afford the uh, you know medicines that maybe cost $6,000 a month for some of us, which are you know, devastating and, and frightening questions to have to, to deal with at any point in one's lives. Um, but I know I can, speaking for myself, I'm, I'm excited and, and committed uh, to food writing now and I think in the immediate future. You know, you, you wonder for a minute during that day when it happens, you know, am I going to start writing? Nothing wrong with it, but, you know, are you going to start writing, you know, ad copy for, uh, you know, reverse mortgages or 1-800-CASH-NOW? Again, nothing wrong respect, with that. No, respect to ad, ad copywriting. We, we all have to, again, yeah. uh, no jo- you know, all jobs are honorable jobs, you know, for the most part. But, you know, you think about that for a minute, and then you realized you're a trained journalist. You know, I'm a journalism professor at CUNY. This is what we do. This is why I'm here. Our job is to, mm-hmm. you know, inject transparency uh, into our larger world. And so um, I have every intention of continuing to write about food. Uh, I have every intention uh, to continue reviewing restaurants. Um, and I hope a lot of us who got laid off will. And I think it's it's all the more important, especially for restaurant criticism right now, because we're living in this world uh, where the economy even though we don't know where it's going to go, it's still pretty strong. Employment is still pretty good. Um, in fact, it's great. It's that uh, unemployment is at all-time lows, as far as I can tell. And folks are increasingly getting excited about getting back into the restaurants, and they have been for the better part of you know this, this vaccine era. And so I, I truly believe at the bottom of my heart that there is no more important time than now to be investing in, in food criticism. Let me ask you uh, this do you feel this was a Vox issue or is this a larger food media issue to be uh, employing a full-time restaurant critic in New York? It seems like, agree with you fully, there is a, a captive audience for restaurant reviews. I think we're dining out more than ever. And I think that food media has lost a few major players. So it seems like, I mean, going back several years, so still, like, there was definitely a market for it. But still, like, it's an ad-driven business and ad ad sales are soft. We've read the headlines. So that probably had something to do with this decision. But, I mean, are, is, I guess my question is, are restaurant reviewers uh, like obsolete or as, like, a unit economics kind of uh, moment? Uh I don't think we're obsolete. Uh, and I can't, you know, as a, I'm not a media executive, and so I can't speak to the economics of it, uh, nor can I speak uh, to ad sales. Um, but in as much as this is something that I've always believed society needs, uh, I believe people uh, like me uh, either want to be involved in food writing uh, or in, involved and engaged in restaurant criticism. I think we will all find a way, and I, I believe that. Love to talk to you about some of the the craft and some of the, uh, the inside information about like reviewing because I think it's l- still a little bit undersold how hard the deadline is. And I've talked to Ruth and I've talked to Bill Addison and Robert and many people in your field, and the deadline is crushing. So, what are your thoughts on that weekly deadline? It's tough, um, but like like any professional journalist, uh, you know, you deal with it. Um, that you you just have to have a plan. Um, yeah, usually I would, I would typically file on Fridays. Uh, I would try to file, you know, uh, you know, two columns a week, usually one shorter, maybe a, a map or something shorter. And then, you know, uh, a slightly longer piece at the end of the week, you know, for publication the following week. Um, you just, you just have to know how long it takes. Um, you know, for me, it would, uh, off the top of my head, you, you probably spend, uh, you know, one and a half days writing and then a half day cleaning it up and then another half day on rewrites. 
so about, you know, half to three quarters of the week working your way through that. And you just, you, you set aside time and you know when you can be creative and you know when you can't. So, you know, I wake up in the morning on a writing day. Um, spoiler alert, as a journalist, most days are writing days. <laughs> right, exactly. But, uh, you know, I wake up a little, little, little later than, than some folks. Uh, and for the first hour or two uh, or three, it, I usually, you know, comb through the copy uh, that I was writing late the night before. I do a lot of my writing late at night. And you clean it up, clean it up, clean it up, wait till it gets into a good spot. And then you continue writing either on that column or or, or another one. Uh, the creative part of my mind kind of kicks into action um, more fervently, usually around, I'd say, 3 p.m. Or, or thereabouts. And so then 3 p.m. onward is when some of the more creative stuff happens. You know, you take a break, you go to a work dinner, uh, or you work out. And then after a work dinner, sometimes you take notes, or usually you take notes, and then, uh, and then you get back to writing. And sometimes, you know, the writing day uh, finishes up early, and sometimes you're, you know, you're writing and taking notes until, um, you know, midnight. Uh, one of the things I've always tried to do, and this is, I think, a pretty standard writing tip, um, I've always found that my brain works better uh, if I change my location pretty frequently. Uh, so I'll, I'll start the morning, you know, doing more administrative or editing stuff out of a, you know, a, a cafe in Hell's Kitchen, um, you know, where I live. Uh, then I'll move back to my apartment. Then I'll go to, again, uh, a work dinner. And then maybe I'll go to a, you know, a local restaurant after that for a cocktail um, again, I don't do that as much, so much anymore after the pandemic, but, you know, I'll go to some place at, at 10 or 11 at night and I'll realize I have three paragraphs left and there'll be live music. I'll be drinking a mojito and that'll put me in the mood, you know, to creatively knock out that, you know, that kicker graph. Yeah. Then again, the process <laughs> after, starts after the rum hits, after yeah. the rum hits and yeah, then you, yeah. you go home, you go to bed, you wake up in the morning, you have a full column and you just have to clean it up for two hours before submitting it. Beautiful. I love the style. I mean, I love that you have this method, and I know Jerry Saltz talks about this with his writing that, you know, legendarily he would drink like these massive glasses of bodega coffee. Um, that seemed just that's the way he did it. What was your what's your coffee, caffeine, food intake while writing? On, on, a, on a heavy writing day, I don't eat a ton. Uh, I have pretty sense. This is not a, a medical. Very LeBron James of you. Like, keep it light. I do a chicken breast before I, I write, and then. Yeah, I keep it super light uh, when I write. Uh, ideally, jasmine tea, uh, steeped for about thirty minutes, and so it's uh, it's a level of caffeine that I would say is <laughs> with a little bit of sugar in it. It kind of makes me levitate. Uh, <laughs> so I'll do one or two of those. That's funny. <laughs> Extraordinarily light caloric intake on a. On a on a writing heavy day, because otherwise I just find my my mood fluctuates a little bit too much, and I and I want to be a little bit more even, Stephen. And then once I get the bulk of my writing done, then I'll then I'll take in some some more calories. But I I, I don't, you know, I'm not I'm not withholding food. You know, if I'm yeah. hungry, I'll eat. But it's usually pretty light. It's probably flatbread pizza with a little bit of tomato yeah. sauce and olive oil, something like that. When's your last day? Do you have like a last day? Do you have a last column planned? Uh, no, my my last day happened uh, when I got that email uh, letting me know about the layoffs, and the last day was that day at five p.m. Interesting. So, are you done writing for Eater, or is your byline going to appear? Uh, I believe uh, they are done with the docket of what I have uh, given them. Okay. Uh, uh, I hope 
to freelance for Eater and <laughs> Vox Media in the future. Uh, I think it's one of the greatest places uh, yeah. folks can write about food or one of the greatest places that, that, that folks can work who are interested in writing about food. Um, so I don't, I don't know what the future is for me and them, but I hope it is a future uh, on a parallel track or on a together track. I love I, it. I like writing for them. But, you know, we'll, we'll see what the future holds. Uh, I have my own plans, and, and they have their plans too. I love it. Well, we'll look forward to to what those plans are. I do not want to spoil a good show, but I'm sure that it will be a good show. I would like to now look back at some of your work at Eater, and I have some specific questions um, about New York City, a city you covered extensively. And I think there's so many interesting things happening. You talk about inflation. We talked about the way the post-pandemic crowds have swelled. You've written about Resi. I'm going to get into that. I want to know first, though, about Rock Center. Like, what is your assessment of what the fuck is going on there? Because it is mind-blowing, it is confusing, it is kind of exciting, it is kind of disappointing. I don't want to name any names, but there's a lot going on at Rock Center. I think it's all of those things. Uh, I I think you said it better than I probably can. Um, And again, this is something I'm I'm hoping to to write about in in the next couple of months. So I'm still... I'm still digesting everything that's happening there. Um, you know, we think of the Ignacio Matos restaurant, you know, Lodi, which is a, you know, reasonably expensive bakery. You know, we have uh, La Roc, which is the uh, kind of the high-end French brasserie, kind of bordering on bordering on fine dining. From the French at Carew, famously downtown and famously expensive. Correct. Um, we have Naro from the... Uh, from hand, I believe hand hospitality and and the Adamix folks, you know the folks that brought us um, Adamix and and Attaboy, and and they have this you know subterranean tasting menu restaurant near the ice rink, and on the opposite <laughs> side of the ice rink, uh, you have the King folks. Uh, yeah, Jupiter, have, uh, Jupiter, who have yeah. an uh, Italian uh, pasta focused restaurant, and then you have a, a larger food court where which I haven't, um, I have not yet been. Uh, to the food court. I'm still kind of digesting uh, it all. It's, you know, when we think of larger curated restaurant developments in New York, I think everyone thinks about probably two separate things. Uh, Folks probably think about the Time Warner Center, now the Deutsche Bank Center, Mm. which is where uh, Per Se and Massa, to the city's most expensive and also heralded restaurants, uh, reside. Uh, and you also probably think about Hudson Yards, uh, formerly home to Tack Room. Uh, <laughs> Milos, one of the most... I have to just laugh when you say Tack Room. Like, everything about that, just absolute thumbs down. Uh, we, we can talk about Tack Room later for sure, <laughs> uh, and I hope we do. Um, but we, we think of these larger developments uh, that are were intended to be curated neighborhoods, uh, you know, when you think of the stereotypical Manhattan neighborhood, you hopefully think of a place where restaurants have opened up and came together organically over the process of years, if not decades. And you know, when I think of my Hell's Kitchen landscape, I think of all the great, you know, Thai and, and, and Latin restaurants that have just been cobbled together there over the course of years. And then you think of a place, again, like Rock Center, which is like Hudson Yards or, or the Time Warner Center, where everything kind of just appears over the course of 18 to 24 months. And, and you realize that you have this uh, I don't know, uh, an Oscar gift bag of restaurants, for Love lack it. of a better term, Very funny. that have been put together <laughs> well over said. a reasonably short period of time. 
there are people who like Rockefeller Center. Uh, there are people who are confused by it. I- I'm still digesting as to how I feel about it. Um, but like I said, I think it's I think it's fair for most New Yorkers to be skeptical of the neighborhood that is put together over the course of a very short period of time. Yeah, well said. I think Hudson Yards is to add, whenever I've lived here 20 years, and I think whenever you build a place that looks like it could be in Kansas City or Dubai, it's like New York has lost a piece of its soul. Right. You're, you're a native. You're, you've lived here your whole life, so please jump in. Yeah, and, and to what extent uh, does this feel like New York, and to what extent does this feel like, you know, Vegas or, or Pentagon City in Washington, D.C.? And I Pentagon City is maybe also another point of reference because everything is kind of underground there. It's funny, when, when, when Hudson Yards and, and the Time Warner Center opened up, uh, folks started questioning whether New Yorkers could be into vertical dining— that is, you know, going up a couple of escalators uh, to eat at the restaurants as much as folks in, say, Las Vegas might be into it. And I, I, I think the jury is still out as to whether each of those developments is successful or not. I think people do enjoy the Time Warner Center, uh, although those are a, a, a very particular type of restaurants there, you know, more special occasion spots. But the flip side of the coin is to what extent will New Yorkers get excited about the more subterranean restaurant themes uh, and subterranean restaurants that we have at a place like Rockefeller Center because they're underground, um, although they're not completely they're not completely subterranean. You know, have a view of the ice rink when you're at uh, when you're at Jupiter. Jupiter. Yeah, you can uh, see those guys skating. And but- so, uh, yeah, I, uh, I'm I'm curious how. I mean, listen, I'm a critic, and so I, I have my point of view. And again, uh, I think it's right to be skeptical, but I'm also excited just how regular office workers and regular New Yorkers make use of that space. And that's something that, of course, that's not something I'd ever discount how, how people learn to make this spot part of their, their neighborhood. And, and that, there is something exciting about that because these folks, especially the folks who have been, you know, office workers at, at 30 Rock and, um, and around the neighborhood, and and they've been in need of culinary options for for quite a bit. Um, so how how are they going to get excited about it, and how are they going to turn that uh, into their own place? I don't have the answer to that yet, but uh, it's it's certainly not a bad thing that there are more culinary options. In yeah, the area. not a bad thing. Net, I mean, Sarah Squirm might like be very stoked about her, you know, as, like like working at SNL and having a great restaurant below the studio. Right, but uh, <laughs> I think I think I think one could also wonder whether having uh, a, a Korean tasting menu restaurant that costs $250 per person after tax and tip in a very odd space, yeah. in a glass box with people passing by you, looking at you in that glass box every single minute of the meal, whether that's the right restaurant for that spot. Um, again, that's not a criticism. That's just me rhetorically wondering whether that's that's going to work. Yeah. Do you have any regrets from when you maybe went a little hard? You went a little. You went a little deep with the with the critical assessment of a restaurant. And I guess my question is: is maybe upon reflection, you were maybe not wrong, but maybe a little too harsh. Uh, no. Um, but I don't. That's not a. That's not a glib no. Um, <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate a non-glib no. Uh, yeah. Not that an I'm, earnest no is better. Yeah. Thank you. Um, but I mean, listen, I'm uh, like any writer, like any journalist uh, who is hopefully humble, uh, humble uh, about their craft. Uh, I'm in constant reassessment of just about everything I write, whether it be negative or positive, um, from the second before it publishes to the day it publishes and to, 
you know, the months and, and years uh, after those columns publish, uh, I, I take what I do extraordinarily seriously. I'm paranoid to the nth degree about fact-checking. Uh, if you've ever seen some of my fact-checking emails, uh, they can be pretty uh, intense. Uh, I, some of them are, you know, I, I get responses over a thousand words probably, and, and those are uh, incredibly helpful when I have chefs who can work with me uh, so that I can tell the right story about a given restaurant. Um, so I'm, 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 I'm constantly paranoid about getting things right. As I often tell my journalism students, you know, if you can't, you know, if, even if it's something as small as misspelling someone's name or, or saying it's cilantro and it was parsley, if you can't get that right, how can the public trust you to get some of the larger themes that you're critiquing? How can they trust you to get that right if you can't get the small stuff right? Mm. You know, you got to get your multiplication tables down before you do your calculus. And so I'm, I'm, I'm paranoid and inc- extraordinarily uh, kind of disciplined about that, you know, part of my job. Uh, and I'm constantly reassa- reassessing, you know, just about everything I do. But when I, I think about some of the more critical takes I, I wrote, um, you know, I think of Chick-fil-A, uh, which was a, uh, I, I had a pretty tough take on a, a lot of different aspects of, of eating there about, I don't know, nearly 10 years ago or five or six years when ago. When they moved to Manhattan and they opened like four places in three months. Correct. Uh, and so I was thinking about, you know, the culture of Chick-fil-A. Um, you can probably uh, assume uh, some of the issues I touched upon, uh, their, you know, philanthropy and, and uh, there were LGBTQ issues to be dealt with in that piece. Uh, not to mention just the, well, the, the hate speech about towards those groups, to be clear. Um, I, I, I forget particularly, I'd, I'd have to reread, yeah. um, but there were some uncomfortable things, uh, regarding philanthropy, uh, at Chick-fil-A, uh, as far as I can recall. Uh, and there was also the issue of the food which I thought was subpar, which hit a deeper nerve. I would say um, my email inbox for the better part of a week was, I would respectfully call that filled with hate mail. Uh, that was the first time I, would, I got something that was as, as close to a death threat as you, can, as you can receive. Maybe it was tongue-in-cheek, but when you wake up every morning and, you know, uh, burn in hell, dine with ISIS— um, uh, clever. Wow. Yeah. Clever. So, so all that. And so that <laughs> is, so you, you get a bit of that. And again, you're never proud of something when you write like a, you know, a, a super negative, uh, piece, you know, that, that, you know, Anton Ego and, and Ratatouille famously <laughs> said, you know, uh, negative reviews are, are fun to write. They're not. Um, I, I often want to just barf before I want to publish those because you know, uh, you could, you know, be impacting someone's livelihood, uh, or the livelihoods of the folks who work there. So that's that's not something that ever makes you feel good. But you know, but then you you realize you got to show up to bat because you're uh, you're writing for a lot of different stakeholders, and 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 uh, and some of the biggest stakeholders are the people who are going to spend their scarce disposable income at these restaurants. And if you don't show up to bat for them, then you know why are you here? And so, but you know, I, I you know I, I think also again of I, I had a pretty critical take on the closure of Tack Room. Uh, I believe the the headline was something to the effect of, you know, Tack Room is a cl- has closed. You know, it probably shouldn't have opened in the first place. And I, you understand when you write something like that, it's it's gonna it's probably gonna hit a nerve, and it did. Uh, that that was more of a, uh, I think, a nerve that that one hit. I would say whatever larger response uh, 
resulted from that, it, it, it kind of felt like an organized hit. Yeah, Ryan, I remember that piece. It was it was early. You you covered a, a basically something that we assumed was going to be a big mall. Big It was previously a big hole in the West Side. But we didn't really know what was going in there. And you wrote this piece, and I remember like, whoa, this is highly problematic in many ways, um, but also maybe going to be extremely successful too. Possibly. Uh, possibly. But yes, it was about... <laughs> The, the point of criticizing Hudson Yards before it opened was not about not giving a real estate group the benefit of the doubt. It was about knowing that it's not about whether these restaurants are necessarily, forgive, the, uh, forgive this point of view, about them being good or bad. It's about criticizing who gets to be there and what is this part of the city going to look like. And... You need to look at that critically, not when the restaurants open, but way before. But of course, when the restaurants open, then you, of course, go ahead and review them. And some of them are good and some of them are not so good. But then later on in the life cycle, uh, when a restaurant closes, then you can uh, still a legitimate to think critically about whether that restaurant should have been in the first place and, and what would have been a better use of the city's real estate. So again, it's it's not simply about going to the restaurant and reviewing it while it's open. It's about understanding that restaurants before they're open and after they're closed uh, are important to be considered critically um, and, and not just when they're open. And, and the review is not simply about going there, eating and saying what to get, what not to. It's about larger issues concerning urban development and who gets to open where and what type of chefs and, and what type of cuisines. When do you feel the most pressure as a writer, as a critic, as, as somebody who um, has their photo at the front door, as somebody who writes for a mainstream publication, one of the most well-regarded publications in food in New York? When do you feel the, the most pressure? That's a great question. Um, I, I'd say generally speaking, and you know, you know, we were just talking about Hudson Yards, for me, the the things that I, I stress out the most about, and I, I can be a pretty stressed out person sometimes, is when I know I'm reviewing something that will impact, you know, hundreds, if not thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers. And so I was, uh, I had more than a few sleepless nights as I prepared for reviewing the larger Hudson Yards complex where I kind of dropped a whole bunch of reviews on one day. Uh, I was pretty stressed out when I reviewed the new Moynihan station. Um, because you, I knew it was a larger multi-billion dollar effort that's going to impact, again, hundreds of thousands, if not millions uh, of New Yorkers. And when you know that many people are going to be exposed to your point of view, you want to make sure you both show up to bat in terms of the, the full breadth of your creativity, in terms of thinking about what this space means for New Yorkers, you know, is this a place for commuters uh, or is this simply a place for, you know, the the Facebook folks working upstairs in the postal building and a, a place for them to get, you know, expensive ramen? You know, those are the things I think about. But I, I know that sounds silly, but it, when you know that many people are going to be exposed to your opinions, uh, I, I can get pretty nervous sometimes. It's not about getting cold feet. It's about, for better or for worse, kind of wearing the weight of the world on your shoulders. And I can tell you that uh, I believe it was the night before Moynihan Station publishing. Uh, I was at Moynihan Station until midnight uh, or later, and I was simply walking around every square inch of the property trying to refute all of the arguments I was making mm. in that piece. 
for a variety of reasons, one of which I knew that the whatever PR team they had there or I had reached out to wasn't cooperating with me. So I needed to personally fact check all of that. You know, I've been trying to be a little bit more chill <laughs> about, about things sometimes. What about the small restaurants when you read about them? Does that give you a lot of, a lot of joy when you're actually doing some discovery? I know you and uh, Robert Sitsuma often would, would collab on, on roundups or on just conversations about a, a food group or, or a, a neighborhood. That would, I would imagine, would maybe be like your, the Prozac to like that anxiety, like writing about like small businesses and just like boostering. Yeah, I've, I take an enormous amount of pride of writing about any small business uh, or any neighborhood. Uh, as a resident of Hell's Kitchen, uh, I get pretty excited about showcasing some of those, uh, especially because I feel like Hell's Kitchen is just such a cool part of Manhattan where I feel like there's a lot of small business, you know, uh, folks and, and you know, Thai and, and Latin restaurants that are that are not run by big groups, but there are these are folks who it's their first point of entry into the formal economy, and they're doing such amazing stuff with, you know, Sichuanese noodle soups or... Uh, or Thai fried chicken spots. I, I, you know, when I when I look back at my legacy at Eater, and one of the things I I really am proud of is uh, I, I've worked extraordinarily hard, again to showcase you know any voice that you hope is maybe didn't have a a, a light shined on them. But I've uh, I, I take particular pride in having shined a light on uh, I think a, a lot of small and maybe some not so small uh, restaurants from Latin America and South America for a variety of reasons. Um, some of them intensely personal and, and some of them just professional and it's just food I like to eat. And, uh, I'm, I'm really proud of say, you know, I'm the one person who kind of wrote a, a longer review on Guantanamera, you know, a Cuban restaurant in Hell's Kitchen that has live music every night. I'm one of the, you know, the few folks, maybe the only person who covered the new location of Bolivian Llama Party, um, an amazing, uh, Andean South American spot uh, in Queens. I'm one of the you know few, if only critics, so I believe, who reviewed not necessarily a small restaurant, but you know Aldama, you know, run by some ex Cosme folks, one of the the best New Mexican restaurants I think in the city. And I'm I'm still I believe one of the the few, if only critics to have reviewed uh, Ensenada, another ex Cosme spot uh, that I think was put on my radar by one of my good colleagues uh, Emma Orlo, who wrote a I think she wrote a nice piece on it, and I was one of the few people to review it. And I think just as you know, a lot of folks right now rightly talk about modern Korean food as one of the kind of the you know, fake air quotes around it, next big things. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not one of the next big things. It is a big thing. It's a hugely important movement in the city. I get excited talking about modern Korean food, but I, I also believe that South American uh, and Latin American and Mexican food sometimes doesn't necessarily get the, the same intense uh, critical eye uh, yeah. as as other cuisine. So I've I've worked pretty hard uh, to make sure that some of those voices and some of those restaurants get a, a light shined on them. And I, I take particular I pride that. in that. Re I respect that a lot. And I, I think um, your readers definitely would tap into some of these these like lesser known uh, South American restaurants that you're, you speak of and, and really appreciate it. Outside of ge geographic uh, significance, is there a trend or movement happening not so not tied to a country or, or culture, but something else that maybe we're not seeing that you're seeing. I don't know if it's stuff we're not seeing, but I I think we're all still pretty excited about this kind of for lack of a better term, end of the world restaurant trend. I think we've been seeing over the the past year. How if you you know, you you walk into Bonnie's and people are drinking giant pitchers of Long Island iced tea and the bartenders are passing out shots. And then you <laughs> 
you know, you walk into the Taiwanese Wenwen in Greenpoint and people are also drinking expensive, gigantic Long Island iced teas. And there's just something wonderful and, and whimsical about the, the modern restaurant feeling like a party after we've all spent too much time inside of our apartments, after we've all spent too much time alone, after mm-hmm. we've all spent too much time being away from, you know, traditional house parties and knowing that you can go to a restaurant, even if you're there just as a solo diner, you can have this kind of fun, cool communal, I'm part of the fun crowd experience. I get that too at Department of Culture, you know, the, the regional Nigerian tasting menu restaurant. Uh, in, uh, I believe it's in Bed-Stuy. Yeah, uh, it's a long list on the beards this year. I'm yeah, like, it's a long list on the beards, yeah. and everyone sits around at a communal table, and if even if you go as a, you know, I try to go as a critic, you try to go with other people, I could only get a solo seat that night, and you're sitting there, and you're surrounded by other people, and you just have to start talking to other folks. And I think I went there on my birthday, in fact, and it was just a, a cool way of forcing someone who spends a lot of time alone as a writer uh, like me, uh, to just start, you know, chatting with a, a bunch of strangers again. It was a good, uh, it was just a good way of, you know, having folks integrate back into society. And so uh, I, maybe that's not the right world, the end of the world party trend. But I like it. I'm buying into it. You totally sold it. I knew exactly what you meant. Yeah, I think it's just a, the fact that restaurants are, are trying to get us all back in our groove in fun and cool and, and, and whimsical ways, uh, often with alcohol. And that's not the worst thing in the world. You wrote a great piece about Resi, and it's related to what you just said about not being able to to get more than one spot at Department of Culture. And I have to ask you about this piece you wrote. And I'm going to link to in the show notes. It's a great piece about like how to like beat Resi, basically. But first, from the jump, it seems Resi has defeated Open Table. I think they both have their their roles. I think for a lot of the for lack of a better term, cooler, hipper restaurants uh, in the city, they're probably on. Uh, on Resi, and it's nice that, you know, Resi is an app that you can open up, and even if you don't know where you're going, you have this kind of this tightly, maybe not tightly, but you have this kind of curated list of of restaurants where you can kind of scroll down. It's like, oh, I know that place, I know that place, this is cool, maybe I'll go here instead. Whereas Open Table is, you know, a lot of restaurants, sometimes mm-hmm. too much. Um, but as my good colleague, uh, Luke, who, like Emma, does incredible work, uh, like Robert as well, they all do incredible work, e- eaters in good hands, make no mistake about that. But, you know, Luke had this really thoughtful piece uh, where, yeah, I mean, the kind of the, the top line was, you know, how Resi won. But also, I think, uh, as he acknowledged in the piece, uh, certain parts of Brooklyn, uh, I think particularly in the, I think the Bayshore area, maybe, um, but also in the suburbs, open table is still huge. You know, when I make, a, I spend a lot of time on the weekends, you know, riding my bike. I have a family who live on the North Shore of Long Island. And if you make a reservation at a restaurant, it's going to be an open table. And so one way of putting it is defeat. Uh, I think another broader way of putting it is uh, it, the market is is segmented. You know, you have talk doing the 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 prepaid, mm. I'm going to spend $1,000 or two at the Sushi Omakase restaurant. You, most most of those are on talk. Uh, then you have, again, the cool restaurants on Resi, most of them. Uh, and then you have, again, you know, kind of open table uh, in the suburbs. And a lot of folks are, are, are comfortable with that system. And then for some restaurants, it's just, you know, it's kind of a, a whole bunch of them. And, of course, you have seven rooms as well. And so— Yeah, there's a lot of, like, guys nipping at the ankles of Resi, too, that are coming up. It's interesting. There certainly are. Um 
but let's focus on Resi. I think you're right. Uh, it is definitely uh, has a certain style of restaurant. I would say many of the restaurants that Eater writes about are on Resi. It just seems like that's no coincidence. I mean, Ben Leventhal started Resi. That's no coincidence either, my statement. Um, but I must say, uh, there's a way to beat Resi. You've written about this. There's ways to, maybe not beat, that is like too binary, but there's a way to help your chances of landing a restaurant that you've read about in Eater and New York Times and all that. What, yeah. what are a few of your, your tips? A few of my tips, some of which are incredibly basic, but you know, in as much as folks get scared sometimes uh, about trying to get the reservation, uh, I often counsel them to <laughs> sign, the whisperer. Yeah, you know, sign up for a Resi Notify yeah. is an incredible service. You'd be surprised how many times as a, either a, in my professional dining or in my personal dining, simply putting yourself down for Notify will get you that same day table because folks will cancel because, you know, it's drizzling outside. It's incredible 99 times out of 100 folks will cancel if it's just like just yeah. just drizzling a little bit yeah. outside. Or Check just the a, weather. Yeah, it's a great time to go to restaurants. Just, I agree. Just a light flurry. It's incredible. Um, humidity, too, seems to be another thing. If it's like like really high humidity in July, you can go anywhere. It's like riding around an empty city. That's a great trip. Everyone's worried about their frizzy hair. I know. I it's probably funny. probably worry about it, too. Like high end. I, I, I feel like, like if you're going to like the high end places, like humidity, like I don't want to go and have a tasting menu when it's like super humid. But you know what? It's... Uh, reservations notwithstanding, I, I truly am a believer, and I, and not everyone agrees with me at this point, if it's just you or it's just you and one other person, you know, again, you try to get into Lilia, you know, one of the hottest, most acclaimed Italian restaurants in Manhattan, you, you, you might get quoted that three-hour wait. But nine times out of ten, even for the popular places, if, if you show up not at precisely prime time, uh, if you show up maybe a little bit later, maybe you'll show up at, say, I don't know, 8.45, 9 p.m., especially if the restaurant is open later. If it's just you and one other person, 99% of the time, that restaurant's going to find a way to get you into the yeah. door and get you and get you fed because that's what restaurants do. They feed people, and they don't, you know, they're not in the business of, of turning folks away. They will, you might not get your, your favorite table, but, you know, they'll find a spot for you at the bar, even at restaurants where a lot of those seats are are booked up. Restaurants rarely turn away folks who are hungry and who are excited about eating at a place. And if you're if you're nice to the folks at the host stand, you're probably gonna be eating there that night, just as long as it's not like, you know, some two seating a night tasting menu omakase restaurant. Historically speaking, has there been like a extremely difficult restaurant for you to book at, like like anecdotally, like that you've just like had the hell of a time getting into that restaurant? Uh, no, actually, no. I'm, I'm pretty good. That's good. Uh, I've, I mean, it's my job, so I have to be pretty disciplined at it. Um, famously, everyone had a hard time getting to Momofuku Co. when it opened up, like in 2008, yeah. when they were one of the first folks to use a Ugh. proprietary reservation It was the system. worst. Uh, it was so bad. Uh, I, I was getting reservations there any given day of the week, uh, yeah. just because you had to kind of, you know, game the system you a little bit. You had to game it. Yeah, and, I remember trying to book prepared. there. Just yeah. to, if I can give you a little context and just to my, you know, my father was one of those folks who won so many hundredth caller radio station contests that they actually had to tell him to stop calling. And he, he actually recruited me on, on certain days when he couldn't win anymore to, to call in. So I have a, I had a pretty fast finger on the mouse for lack of a better term. <laughs> I love that and story, so I Ryan. Was, I was always pretty good at getting reservations, but just again, pulling back a little bit, uh, 
most places I eat at, I, I'm just probably going as a walk-in. Yeah. Um, and again, I, I, you know, if you if you show up at Bonnie's, you're gonna you might wait for three hours if it's you know two of you at seven thirty, uh, or at least it was when it first opened up. But if you go at the right time and you plan it out right as a walk-in, you're gonna be eating there that night, and you're not gonna be waiting two hours. Maybe you'll be waiting an hour, but you know what? Me waiting an hour, that's, you know, that's part of my entertainment for the night. That's me hanging around in the foyer of a restaurant, having a fun cocktail, drinking a beer, and people watching. And I, I enjoy those 60 minutes, sometimes I even enjoy those 70, 80, 90 minutes. That's, you know, that's part of being out in New York. It's not just eating. It's about being part of this, this vibrant, pulsating scene. So true. Did you have, like, a crew you would dine with or you still dine with? Yeah. Um, Who are they? Like, without, you can say their names if you want, but, like, are they, are they uh, people in the industry? Do you dine with your editor? Like who? who yeah, you, obviously, you dine with your coworkers. You love them, and uh, part of that is not just because they're amazing people, um, and you want to make sure that they're you know eating at these restaurants as well. Um, and of course, they they do that in their own accord. You know, we all have budgets at Eater. Um, uh, budgets differ for for different folks, um, but you want to make sure that your opinion about a very specific thing that happens over the course of a single evening is not existing within a vacuum. Um, yeah. Let me say that again. You know, in a different way, uh, going to a restaurant as a critic is not like watching a movie. Um, it, it's like watching The Godfather, but The Godfather has maybe a different plot line on any <laughs> given night. And so you want to make sure you have other folks that, who are there to document some of the sometimes crazy things that happened with you. And then you want to go back to the office or Zoom or what have you in the pandemic era, and you want to have a good conversation about this. Uh, you want to say, hey, what did you think about this dish? What did you think about that dish? We were both there on the same night. Maybe you were actually there a couple nights before me and something different happened. And so you can have this hopefully erudite and, and delightful conversation uh, that tries to you know, unpack some of not just the service and execution issues regarding the food, but you also want to have this larger conversation about the cultural and contextual issues about a given restaurant, what they're trying to go for. I mean, are they successful in serving, you know, avant-garde food that tips its hat to, I don't know, the, the culture of the 1980s or what have you? Or, or is it just silly? Is it meaningful or is it dumb? Does it make you happy or is it uh, is it didactic? Uh, those are weird things to say, but, you know, you you go through these conversations. Is it clickbait or is it actually genuinely innovative? And is, is it meaningful? Is this going to advance dining out in a? In, 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 a, in a cool way um, are the the you know is this an effort to promote more accessible fine dining or are they just gonna you know double their prices in the next year uh, and all of a sudden they're gonna have an entirely different crowd and so these are the things you deb debate with your coworkers and hopefully with your dining companions as well and uh, and and that that results in in better criticism and better yeah. thinking and just a better work environment. I really everyone. respect this methodology, the little peek inside the way you review, because I, I feel like many of the critics I've talked to, I've spoken with, do not actually do this and talk about their coworkers and their colleagues and doing zooms or doing chats in the at the water cooler about the restaurants you share, either the same night or a night before or night after. I think that's a really strong way to review because obviously there are off nights, there are off dishes, and to judge a restaurant and say, oh, it's kind of mid based on one visit or one moment is so damning and crushing, especially for a small business. Yeah, and I, I should point out, it's not like we 
you know, sit down at a formal roundtable the day no, before and, I don't get and, that. and have a, you know, a postmortem. But I don't it's, get that. Yeah, it's more casual. You know, it's like we're, we're chatting about in Slack about our, our various meals yeah. and it's like, hey, my experience is different or, or yeah, about the same. And just that, that collective environment of having a bunch of amazing people in the same Slack room or room talking about the industry that we love and that we hopefully we're trying to bring to a better place. That's, that's one of the things I'm going to miss most about working at Eater. Okay, so... The best meal you've had while reviewing restaurants in New York? I often tell people, and I'm going to subvert your question a little bit, there's, there's, there's different awesome meals for different occasions. But I, I remember having an amazing meal at Hometown Barbecue with my good friend London Adam, uh, who is also, uh, I think he also is getting laid off, uh, which is unfortunate. But I just remember having a, just a great American barbecue meal with him. Uh, I remember having a great meal at Le Grand Wee with Robert Sietzema and Bill Addison. Uh, we were all together, and we all chatted about our meal and, and wrote about it. I remember having one great meal in the Coney Island Boardwalk in the middle of the pandemic when I was reviewing Tashkent Supermarket. Uh, and I just remember, you know, getting these great samsa, this great Uzbek food, this great Kyrgyz food. I was eating I think, both Kyrgyz and Uzbek samsa, sitting on the boardwalk, watching a storm coming in. And just uh, just taking in the peace of the afternoon and and realizing where I was in the pandemic and that we're all going to make it out of this together. And just taking in the splendor of, of New York City and all the great cultures and cuisines and that you could get so many amazing things at this one amazing supermarket. And it was particularly important to me because, you know, when I was a, a young person in my 20s, you know, my father would bring me home. You know, he works in South Brooklyn. He would bring me home Uzbek food, and we'd watch the Yankee games together. Uh, and so, uh, fortunately, he's still around. He's still healthy. Uh, and so just sitting on that bench uh, in Coney Island, eating amazing cent- Central Asian food, the storm rolled in, taking in the, the beauty of just uh, of, the, of New York City and knowing I could do this for a living uh, and knowing I could tell these cool and fun stories, uh, that made me, it gave me a, a profound sense of peace and happiness, and um, I'm going to keep fucking doing it. Ryan, we asked our guests on the Taste Podcast, if you could write a cookbook or food culture book, without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world to execute this book, Ryan, what would that book be? I will censor my answer a bit because I'm, I'm working on some stuff. You got a proposal I, in, the, in the back pocket? Yeah, I have a proposal. It was... Uh, okay, let's go I there. was working on it before uh, the pandemic. Then when the pandemic happened, I, I realized that... Uh, I needed to think less about books and, and more about reporting about uh, our devastated hospitality industry. And, and so I will partially censor my answer. But if I could tell a story about what's going on in New York uh, or about what's going on in, in the larger food world right now, I, I think there are a lot of fun stories about giving more voice uh, to Central Asia, the Caucasus, uh, Ukraine and Russia and all the diverse foodways in that larger part of the world uh, and that multi-ethnic and multilingual part of the world. Um, I'm also, as I've said before, I'd, I'd love to tell more stories about uh, South America, Latin America and Mexico mm-hmm. and the, you know, writing about the Latino experience in, in New York City, especially, you know, from the, you know, a we all know that Dominicans really recently overtook Puerto Ricans as the largest Latino minority uh, in New York City. And so, uh, but that's, it's not a competition. It's about, we live in a city where I think Latino voices need to be amplified. Uh, and I would love to tell more stories uh, about 
that larger, diverse series of communities from both a, a cultural and a, and a culinary perspective. And I, and even though that might not be in the in the book cards for me, um, I, it's certainly in the storytelling cards for me. Well, I hope I can have you back to talk about one or many of these books. Thank you so much for joining the Taste Podcast, Ryan. Thanks for having me on, Matt. I appreciate it. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening. 